Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. I'm John Bodhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, it's time to break out the Randy Travis. You know, every now and then, I sing a few lines of Randy Travis. I'm going to do it now in relation to the uh, idea that the United States was going to re-enter and uh, sign a new Iran deal, which I have been saying since the beginning of the administration was not only a bad idea, but a ludicrous idea that it would never happen. So, I told you so, I told you so. Karine Jean-Pierre basically said the Iran deal was dead on Monday from the White House podium. Uh, it was obvious, really, I think, from the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war that the idea that uh, we could be in a position where Russia would be the guarantor of Iran's nuclear material when we were effectively at war with Russia <laughs> was preposterous. And now that Iran is um, explicitly now providing drones and and stuff like that to the Russians uh, uh, becoming a participant in the war, um, even the Biden administration has now had to face reality and acknowledge that uh, this this was not going to happen. No, you raise an interesting thing, which is that that may be the case, but uh, do, the diplomats, you know, it's sort of like they may still be there like the dukes shouting at the end of trading places turn those machines back on you know because of the monomaniacal ahab like pursuit of this preposterously bad policy uh you know rob uh robert malley and others uh are gonna find themselves you know sort of like having wasted two years with nothing to show for it but you know such is life when really you're what a tragedy well malley, a terrible thing malley actually said it's not even on the agenda now Okay, so what is so the agenda? Mal really, yeah. what is the agenda in Vienna? This is just a ghost ship. Just right. cruising the, around. Yeah. yeah, the agenda in Vienna should be trying to turn everybody who is at the table negotiating uh, and see if they'll defect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be the that would be my my agenda. It was like, okay, you really want to go back to you want really want to go back to Iran, which is maybe on the verge of a revolution. Come, we'll 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 take you in, we'll drain you of all your secrets will you know give you a nice house somewhere and try to keep you from being assassinated the way you tried to assassinate other people in washington we'll, we'll try to we'll try to protect you i don't know the deal couldn't have gone more spectacularly wrong i mean the the negotiations for it um biden in 2021 killed sanctions on iranian missile producers that that had been in place under trump um Right now, the administration is talking about imposing sanctions on Iranian missile producers because of, of uh, their they're giving missiles to the Russians. Um, given the the involvement, as John says, with with Iran's involvement with the war in Ukraine, and the most extraordinary uh, uh, movement against the regime of of the Iranian people simultaneously, there was just absolutely nothing left in this this was just a a, a dead letter all the way through you know it, it leads me uh, to point out that um 
the eight years of the Obama administration now have Obamacare, whatever Obamacare, whatever shell of Obamacare, Obamacare now is, because of course it no longer has the mandate. You know, it's a kind of um, form of insurance that a bunch of people are taking, I guess, with government support. I mean, it's a little unclear what Obamacare exactly is now. Um, Very little is left of the Obama administration, if you think about everything that it did, right? The stimulus disappeared into state debt payments. Um, I mean, maybe you could say, if you think that the automobile uh, industry supports of 2009 saved the automobile industry, then maybe he can claim that. But I'm not sure that that is economically, politically, or logistically accurate. Um, You know, uh, Dodd-Frank is still there, uh, which is not exactly uh, the greatest thing ever, uh, in in regulatory terms and uh the its for signature foreign policy accomplishment the jcpoa uh, not only was dead in 2017 but is now really you know it's it's uh, it's it's uh it's really most sincerely dead. As but it, well i think that maybe that explains why we've seen re- in recent news clips uh, obama expressing nostalgia for his own era uh at a time when democrats could actually not have to speak in the language of identity politics 24 7 regardless of the issue and he is you know he's actually angered a lot of the very the more progressive democratic base with by reminding them of a time not that long ago when even a even a pretty liberal democrat like him could still talk about this country in a way that was understood by the vast majority of people that's not the way democratic progressives talk any longer or allow their or or want or need their leaders to talk so it is he does sometimes sound like a, uh, someone from another era when when he speaks now about his time in in the white house yeah but he's doing so from in a very academic way cuz right he's the progenitor of all this stuff when he wasn't when he was talking to friendly audiences he would talk like the 25-year-old staffers at the time, maybe not using the lingua franca of, you know, woke academia, but expressing the very same concepts and legitimizing them and popularizing them. What he's telling his fellow Democrats to do is be better performers, Mm, be better liars. That's a good point. Well, he said you're a buzzkill. I mean, the funny thing is (laughs) that he did it on Pod Save America, which is, of course, the podcast uh, of his, um, you know. His own staffers. Yeah. Yeah, his, talk about of, nostalgia of, of his <laughs> of his uh you know limo driver and his twenty uh, two year old lousy speechwriter who has never written a decent word and uh, you know his bag carrier and all of that and they've built a media empire out of insta Obama nostalgia like it was like insta nostalgia right Trump wins they're going you know. People walk around, you can see people on the Upper West Side where I live wearing these Pod Save America shirts or friend of the pod. And that's not me. They're not talking about me. And I was going to say, um, you have a like you have a branding uh, lawsuit there. You know? I know it's really it's really it's really bad. Um, and and but it's interesting because, of course, Obama was right. It's like, what's the matter with you people? Like you're talking like this is not the way to talk like you're making it so everybody is walking around walking on eggshells like that's not a successful strategy and i think noah gets it exactly right by saying obama is saying look if anybody knows how to perform i know how to perform you guys stink be better politicians yeah yeah, which is kind of a learned skill 
get your act together because you're about to, you know, th- this party is about to turn into Spider-Man turn off the dark. You know, we're about to close with a $75 million loss on, on you know, uh, after election night. Um, and, you know, again, another data point in what we were talking about yesterday, which is this kind of the democratic panic about what is now about to happen that was forestalled by the supposed, you know, uh, you know, momentum, uh, you know, supposedly the Dobbs, cre- the Dobbs decision created. I, I just want to jump back and make one last point about, about Please. The, the Iran deal yeah. here. Um, while, while nothing of, no, none of the Obama foreign policy stands, um, we have the ill effects of, of the attempt to keep it in place, um, which is our, our blown up relationship with Saudi Arabia at a time when, when we need fuel. That, that, right. that was blown right. up to say that, that we sacrificed that in pursuit of the Iran deal in the same way Obama sacrificed his relationship with the Saudis in pursuit of the Iran deal, sacrificed uh, our interests uh, in Syria in pursuit of the Iran deal. I also want to add one thing on the Iran deal just to illustrate how stupid this whole debacle was. Just three weeks ago, Barack Ravid in um, Axios reported that there was just one huge obstacle, but only one huge obstacle in the way of restoring something that looks like the JCPOA. And that one huge obstacle is uranium particles found by UN inspectors at, at sites that are engaged in the illicit production of fissionable material and iran says they were planted there by the israelis but we just can't get over the fact that you know at these nuclear sites they're making fissionable material it's kind of a big obstacle yeah i I mean look we could also add if we wanted to do the you know the bad effects i mean there are all kinds of bad effects right i mean but i mean we can say that the road to that led to afghanistan and then ultimately I, I continue to believe has to be given the you know uh, the responsibility for Russia miscalculating and believing that it had an open door, open path to the seizure of Ukraine, where the failure to enforce the red line in Syria, and then of course the direct refusal to engage with the partial with the um, annexation of areas of Ukraine by Russia in 2014. To which we barely responded, except behind the scenes with, you know, starting to train the Ukrainian army, though I think that accelerated under Trump, not that Trump necessarily wanted that to happen. Um, but, uh, you know, the the idea that the United States was not in the grand, in the great game was Obama's explicit foreign policy decision. I mean, that was the meaning of the exceptionalism speech in 09, the meaning of the Cairo speech in 09, that we were, to the extent that we could, withdrawing and leading from behind, remember, in Libya, we were withdrawing from a position of unquestioned world leadership in the maintenance of some semblance of an international order. Because when we did it, it all came a cropper. We were terrible and we did terrible things. And we had, you know, 22 people in Gitmo and that was so awful. How horrible of us, how terrible that we were, that we took people off the terrorist battlefield and put them somewhere where they couldn't reorganize to, to, to do mass terrorism events. 
all of that, you know, sort of piddling criticism. Um, and, and, and there we were. So to 12 years later, uh, things burble and percolate and all of that. And then suddenly Vladimir Putin is starting a war on European soil for the purposes of swallowing up another country and reminding us, NATO and the world, that this is a very dangerous place. And without rules, in implicit rules in place. We were reminded about this in Obama's tenure. I remember this in, um, when the hostilities on the Arabian Peninsula began in Yemen. Um, and that was preceded by a series of strikes in Yemeni territory by the uh, Saudis and the UAE. Uh, and Washington was given no forewarning. And this was a real shock to me at the time. I remember it being a time. This is the the world order reasserting itself. These you know regional aspiring hegemonies seeing after their own territory and and cutting the U.S. out um, because they knew that it would be an obstacle to their the pursuit of their strategic objectives in their regions. And that's a really bad sign. And it turned out to be a, a, a foreshadowing of the the world we're in now with some pretty significant regional actors, aspiring hegemonies, even near peer competitors, challenging the U.S. position in their respective regions. But this this is both in foreign policy and domestic policy, a perfect example of how the Democrats, but Biden, the Biden administration in particular, thinks it can, look, you can't outrun a bad diet. You can't out-message bad circumstances. And they are trying to out-message circumstances that everyday people just look at and say, what are you talking about? I mean, we've talked endlessly about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. That's a perfect example. But they do it with crime. They're doing it with foreign policy. I mean, when asked about, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia or the strategic oil reserve, you know, all, all of the issues with gas prices, you're always told, well, it's a lot more nuanced than than people make it out. It's nuanced. So, so when there's a problem they actually have no answer to or no message to for the American people, it's, it's nuanced. When they're caught on the stump and need to have some phrase to say it's it's you know oh we're reducing inflation with the inflation reduction act people are like then why does chicken cost 14 dollars now like they're, right. they're the the messaging and it's weird and i do think to go back to the obama years you know there was this this sub theme of contempt not not contempt that's too strong condescension the obama people had a lot of were very pretty condescending to joe biden as vice president at times and in retrospect there must be some need that biden has to to kind of prove, look, I'm just as I'm just as transformational. I'm just as visionary. Um, unfortunately, it's not the case, and it seems like Biden's uh, Obama's assessment of Biden was probably much more accurate than than we'd like to believe. You know, part of this is the the difference between the two is that um, Obama very studiously maintained the goodwill of the the press that he needed, um, and they they continued to sell his nonsense and his his legitimate policies uh whenever whenever he needed them biden's lost that i mean he'll he'll get it occasionally but but he's largely lost it's very conditional i was thinking about this and i want to proposit a theory so i can come back and say i told you so if i'm right and then i'll ignore i will i'll forget that i said it if i'm wrong so yeah but then we'll get more randy travis so yeah you'll get more if i'm right and if i'm wrong i never said it because i'm 61 years old and i can't remember what i had for breakfast and it's you know we're recording this at eight o'clock in the morning so i won't remember that i said it but i will if i get it right and it is this they're still being very cautious, like the late night comedians and the late night shows and things like that about going at Biden, right? They still are. There was one a blow against him on Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live 
um, preceded by um, Trevor Noah <clears throat> doing a couple of bits about right. okay. Joe Biden's obvious decrepitude. Right. But there's been very little of it, relatively speaking. Right. It's compared to George W. Bush or Dan Quayle or whatever in terms of infirmities and all of that. Let us assume that uh, for this for the sake of this argument that election day goes spectacularly badly for the Democrats. Not just badly, but spectacularly badly. It will be open season. They will say Biden, they will, without, not that there's a meeting where everybody sits around talking about this. This is how, you know, the hive mind works. Biden will be toast. Like it will be every night will be Biden is a senile doddering old fool because they will want to change the atmosphere so that he does not run again in 2024. And they will be the cutting edge. Colbert, I don't know when Trevor Noah's leaving, leaving his job, but you know, Jimmy Kimmel and and SNL and John Oliver and whoever. It will be time for Biden to go. And they will be merciless. They will Gerald Ford him. Okay. They, well, here's the problem is then you you got to worry about Kamala Harris. Because if no. you can't, if you go too hard on Joe Biden, you can't then go hard on Kamala. Oh, they want Pete Buttigieg who's been lurking around doing his little yeah but you can't you can't decapitate the administration if you're if they're making political considerations here and not actually just looking at the comedy they're just going to be mad at him they're just going to be the point is they're going to be mad at him they're going to blame him they're going to be annoyed and the things that we see that they are that are slightly veiled to them that only break through because you can't avoid seeing them they will start seeing as though they are under a microscope. And once that happens, you, you once you see it, you can't unsee it, no matter what you do. And I mean, explicitly, the idea would be you can't look. I, I go on Twitter. I see yesterday Chuck Todd is trending. Chuck Todd of MSNBC is trending. And what is it? Chuck Todd didn't even say anything. It was Andrea Mitchell interviewing Pelosi, and she asked a couple of follow-on questions to stuff Pelosi said about inflation, which we'll which we'll get to. And the entire world of left-wing MSNBC obsessive Twitter is like, Andrea Mitchell is a Republican; she has to go, and Chuck Todd has to go too. Chuck Todd must go. Andrea, Mitchell, they are both Republicans. They are dead enough. Why? Because that every single word out of their mouth isn't. Trump, 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 Trump. Hi, I'm Nicole Wallace. The word Trump appears every three le- three words in my vocabulary. Oh, let me bring on a new prosecutor who's going to tell you that he, Trump is about to be indicted. Da, 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 da. So they they do something else. It doesn't matter what they do. Just the tiniest little speck of independent thought causes an avalanche of criticism. Tell me about it. From activists, right? Okay. So that is the atmosphere in which people are bathed who do this stuff, you know, for mass media. If that atmosphere changes, if the atmosphere shifts, I don't know what to say. I mean, I just think Biden will become the person that the RNC research Twitter feed (laughs) makes him out to be. And so I just want to read one quote from the RNC research Twitter feed that I sent to you guys, yeah, which is, oh no, this is actually, yeah, yeah, it's anyway, it's um, Biden uh, said somewhere, 
the right that I pushed hard and I finally got changed to marry couples in the privacy of their bedroom. And then he said, no, wait, I was wanting to talk about uh, the Dobbs, Dobbs, but I'll get to it. The right that I pushed hard and I finally got changed to marry couples in the privacy of their bedroom. So it's an interesting destination wedding idea, but really not kind of top of the list for most brides. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so I just think there is going to be a but now to go from the ridiculous to the to to the to the more 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 serious in terms of policy. Um, a lot of what happens when when the left takes over, when Obama wins or Biden wins or something like that is the is their version of negative partisanship, although in this case it's more ideological negative partisanship. All these arguments about the injustice of uh, American political and ideological behavior at the governmental level goes on on the on the on the left. Now it's increasingly like that on the right, part because of the rise of the natcons and stuff like that. But really, this was mostly the province of the left. The general uh, the general idea on the right was when we get power, what we're going to do is we're going to cut the brambles and branches and obstacles out of the way to free up the American people, business, whatever, right? That, that there's a lot of stuff that accretes over time, bureauc bureaucratically, regulatorily, and all that. And we're going to try to clear that out of your way to let you go. And the and the left's position is that uh, American governmental authority uh, is often exercised. Uh, they're punching down, they're hurting the poor, they're hurting people abroad. And we need to come in and morally, we need to sort of fix things so obama came in and the moral fix was we're not you know we see what we've done in the course of this decade the decade of the aughts with the war and terror and various other things and we're disgusted by ourselves so we're going to pull back we we're we're we're, we're going to quiet down things in in iraq and we're going to we're, we're not we're going to lead from behind we're not we're going to we're not an exceptional nation all of that and this happens domestically as well. That is the important thing. So uh, we signed the JCPOA. Iran is not deterred. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't enforce the red line. Syria is no longer deterred. Uh, Putin invades you, uh, Crimea or takes over, you know, annexes Crimea, stuff like that. And the, uh, uh, the, he is not deterred. There is very little in the way of deterrence that is established. And domestically, in and about the late 20 teens, uh, deterrence of bad actors domestically starts happening with the with the end of cash bail, w uh, you know, with the end of bail, with the uh, with the decarceration movement, with the effort to release people, uh, you know, uh, larger amounts of parole, all of that, and the consequences are similarly immediate, right? New York City, forty percent rise in crime. Almost annually now, since 2019, crime has gone up and up and up and up and up from this incredibly low base. So we haven't even gotten back to where we were in the really bad years, but we're 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 heading there. And this is the thing that Democrats remove American deterrence because they do not trust American power, and they do not trust the idea that strength deters. They don't like it because they think it's unfair. Strength should not be our watchword. Strength is, you know, strength uh, makes people dominate rather than create consensus or be compassionate or something like that. And it just gives the counterparty 
like the Republican Party, just an immense amount of running room. Because even though the party seems very radical and there's a lot of radical candidates and all of that, at essence, what they're saying is, these people are crazy. They've let the world loose and they've let criminals loose, you know, and they've let inflation loose and they've let all this stuff loose. Let's go back to stopping that before it destroys us. Um, and it's a very interesting dynamic because the Democrats really, I mean, Obama thinks it's because they're buzzkills and they are, and wokeness is a buzzkill, but it's actually policy driven. Like they've had, they've had their, they've had their shot and inflation's up, crime is up and the world is a, the world is a uh, charnel house. Well, and they uh, also, they've mistaken power and for power and authority, right? So they have power. And they're exercising in this way and passing policies that aren't having the uh, desired effect uh, from the perspective of the people who are the receivers of them. It does have the desired ideological effect for the people who are passing them. But authority is a different idea, right? You have authority when people trust that you have their best interest at heart and that the institutions through which you're exercising your power actually are have the good of the people in mind, not simply, you know, partisanship, ideological, uh, you know, uh, nonsense. And I think Democrats really don't have that. I think they assume they have it and the way they talk certainly uh, suggests that they assume they have it from the people. But that's why that's, you know, I, I'm constantly complaining about the sort of condescending tone I sense from a lot of Democratic leaders. Um, that is where it, I think, rests is this idea that because they were that they should be their authority should be recognized rather than earned uh, by the people too i mean this is the this is the lowest hanging fruit that obama could possibly address because they don't think the policies are the problem they think it's purely tonal and and what they're focusing on what he's what barack obama is saying to his fellow progressives is that you have become the new puritans you are waging a war on fun available at fine bookstores everywhere um and that's and the focus of my book is on the trivia, is on the stuff that just doesn't matter. It's tonal, it's it's myopic, it's obsessive, and it has everything to do with cultural uh, artifacts and the manifestations of, of our cultural uh, inclinations and nothing to do with policy because the policy is great. Everybody loves the policy. They just need to feel it. It's just the way we talk about our social milieu that's turning people off. And that's an easy fix, right? And it kind of is. But not if you are genuinely possessed of a moral sense that of purpose and that you're surrounded by um, conditions that are unacceptable, that are wrong, that are immoral. There's a there's a moral streak on the part of the left that Barack Obama rejected uh, and the, that his co-partisans do not. This is why the the combination of the policy and the policies and the buzzkill much more powerful than the its constituent parts you see when you when you have unleashed all these horrors upon the american people and then want to scold them about what they can say and tell them that listen on top of all this hell that we're putting you through stop having fun right don't and don't care about that hell care right. about the words you use and the and the and the but what you purchase and a the combo is is the one that just well, makes people. And Obama accepted quite life. a lot of this, quite a lot but, of this in the Democrats. But Biden, world. I mean, it's interesting. I did, but the other day, Biden uh, reiterated the the his his belief that police should get funding. You know, kind of explicitly rejecting the defund the police message. 
But you know what? Nobody cares anymore about him saying that because the reality, as Abe says, the reality that people are experiencing, particularly in cities where defund the police was was a motivating force to actually defund the police and crime is on the rise, particularly violent crime. That doesn't mean anything because I think I think you guys are right. People look around and say, who cares if he's now saying it? It's too late. We've gone we've gone too far down this road that you guys said we should all would lead us to utopia. And instead, we're in a hellscape. What do we do now? Well, you vote for someone else. And that's why I think even some deep blue places are considering Republican leadership now. There were very few aspects of Barack Obama's policy preferences that he didn't couch in moral terms. We have moral obligations to Syria. We have moral obligations to expand health care coverage. We have moral obligate moral responsibilities to Laos from the Vietnam War for citizens and NGOs, refugees, safe havens, anything you can imagine was a moral obligation. And he talked about it in terms that in using language that would have been at home in a pulpit. And his co-partisans have internalized all that. Well, Biden talks about restoring our souls, right? We, but no, but, ex but exactly. And the whole point is that for so many people who lead, um, who are the opinion leaders of this liberal left coalition, um, the trivia is, are the point. Um, the 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 things that Obama says uh, constitute a buzzkill. That's where the juice is. Like the article that we published, the excerpt from Noah's uh, superb book, Rise of the New Puritans, now available everywhere. We published in our uh, July-August issue, You Are What You Don't Eat, is about people going after restaurants and food trucks for making food uh, and appropriating indigenous cuisines. Now, that is the easiest thing for Obama, would be the easiest thing in Obama's indictment of the buzzkill to say, what's the matter with you people? It's perfectly fine that there's a great taco truck in, in Portland. Stop it. Like, you're, you're being a buzzkill. But the logic of the democratic multicultural view inexorably gets you to having to shut down food trucks. I mean, Obama that makes an appearance. Obama makes an appearance in that in that chapter because it's also uh -huh. on um, eat uh, eating meat rather, um, right. because eating meat is sort of a sin. Um, and I want to find the exact quote because yeah, after he left office, he says our our changing climate is already making it more difficult to produce food. The developing world is, you know, we're taking from the developing world. This is a zero-sum game quote, because a lot of you people don't just eat for health, he noted. We eat because it tastes good, too. And I close that that observation with, um, you know, just kind of speculating on whether he's articulating the scale of the problem we face or just observing hu the human condition, because the two things are linked. The, this is part of the human condition, and right. it is the problem we face. Right. Well, the problem so is we must alter the human ultimately. condition. Yeah. Problem is people ultimately, and the problem is ultimately, according to the de you know the way this all sort of declines, like a like a Latin declension, is white people, and so it's white people who are appropriating things, and seizing power and controlling the world, and we just need to pull that back. We are, we we are we are bad. And this is a conversation that we are having with ourselves inside the United States about the evils and, and badness of the United States. As we can see from Putin and Putin's behavior, 
other countries do not have the view, have the self-critical view and, and have a politics of self-criticism the way we do. In fact, almost no other country on the planet has anything remotely resembling this. I mean, I, just to give you an example of this, there was one Russian intellectual. I mean, there was a, you know, basically Tolstoy was an internal critic of the czarist regime from the left. You know, Anna Karenina is an, essentially an, is, is a novel that concerns itself very deeply with Russian um, interventionist behavior in its near abroad, you know, sort of like in, in, in invading other countries. He wrote, an, he wrote a, a, a liberationist story about the Chechens called Haji Murad. He was one person. He was the greatest mind of his age, the greatest Russian of his age, but he was one person. This is not a normal thing, and we have it. Other countries don't have it, and every time we indulge in it, we lose deterrence. Because we turn into what have we done? What are we doing that's so terrible to ourselves? We're just, we are doing bad things and we need to stop ourselves from doing bad things. And maybe that's a noble impulse. I won't even, I won't even criticize the impulse, even though I think it's often quite evil because we are, in fact, the greatest country on earth. But nonetheless, let's say that it's a noble impulse because it's full of, you know, self, self-awareness and the ability to criticize yourself and all of that. The world suffers from it. Ordinary people suffer from this because of the policy implications, which are, okay, you know what? There are too many people in prison. That's really terrible. Let's see what it's like to not have so many people in prison. Well, guess what it's like? Crime goes up. So you don't want that many people in prison? Who wants? Then fine. We're, crime's going to go up. How's that going to play? How are people going to like that? Is that good? And, you know, sort of decapitating or or crippling or hobbling the police in the maintenance of public order on a day-to-day basis. How's that going to play out? Well, or they're here in D.C., they're actually going to rewrite the criminal code and they're going to they're going to reduce penalties for things like rape, car uh, carjacking, um, assault. They're going to just just instead of because they don't want people in prison and it's not working not to arrest people and they're they're not prosecuting far too many they're just going to literally rewrite the definition of what counts as a crime and the amount of time you would have to serve to do it and that will have a similar effect so it's very that strikes me as even more orwellian because it's saying oh this is this is actually not that bad so we're only going to put them put them away for 5 years when it used to be 15 um and the deterrent effect is lost the you know it, it's bad it's bad so i mean and we see that as well with with other merit-based questions too when things when the outcome isn't what say a progressive worldview would want instead of just fixing the game you eliminate the requirement right you just say the the requirement itself is the problem we will eliminate that right um okay well the more i just yeah, yeah go ahead the more you um give on any of these issues um the harder the left is going to push it's never enough i mean this is it's kind of related to sort of the way that um, we've recently discovered that the Democrats haven't found a way to to talk about abortion in, in the in the in the wake of Dobbs, because it turns out that um, as these issues come up, maximalism is the only way to go, you know. So Trump, don't forget, um, was was fairly committed to, to prison reform. Right. Yeah. But. But so, but Kanye, 
Kanye. That, that, there you go. Kanye and Kim, both of them. Fruit right. and poison tree. But 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 the the response is like, well, you know, they 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 think we still have a you know a, a country littered with you know panopticons or something, and and, and you you got to get rid of you basically got to get rid of every every prison and 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 decarcerate entirely. If you scratch the surface, the activists want that. Uh, amazing. Um, you know what else is amazing? And difficult and complicated running a business, particularly a small business, because your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. You know, someone isn't showing up when they're supposed to get complaints because someone on the team, you know, smells a little funky. Better talk to Bambi with Bambi. Get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month available by phone, email and real time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers can easily cost 80 grand a year. Bambi, $99 a month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com, Bambi.com, and then type in Commentary Magazine. Let's go to what I mentioned before about um, Nancy Pelosi. Christine uh, dug up this quote. She was talking all day yesterday all over the place, or has been for the last couple of days, about inflation. Uh, Christine, do you want to read this? Because it's your fine. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, so she said she was asked about inflation. Obviously, as we know, the number one concern right now, inflation in the economy for, for American voters. And she said, well, inflation's an issue, but it's global. It's global. What's the Republicans' plans? They ain't got nothing. When you bring down unemployment, inflation goes up. So in any case, Biden brought unemployment down. He cut it in half. Inflation is there, but it's global and not as bad as it is in some countries. So this struck me as not just tenured, but downright obnoxious. Here's someone who we know to herself personally be a multimillionaire, um, who was infamously uh, shown during the during the pandemic, like, you know, enjoying chowing down on her extremely expensive novelty ice cream treats. Um, which became a meme for a reason, because it showed a kind of out of touch uh, Democratic Party leader sort of uh, making light of most Americans experience. But this is terrible. The idea that we should judge our experience in daily life with inflation and costs with other countries, that's that's not the issue. So she so this is, I think, one of those examples where they have no story to tell. So they downplay the seriousness of this issue as a as a as an American voters experience. And it reads as condescending. She likely did not intend it that way. She's trying to find some way to claim that the Democrats are doing something for you. But note that she's not really talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is whose name should be the only thing out of her mouth if she actually had a message about inflation. So I just it struck me as as seeming kind of like desperate flailing. I think does it too. But but by the way, also through his ice cream cone, uh, yeah. <laughs> when he was asked recently about about it, uh, he said it's global, it's global. And uh, we're doing better than anywhere else. Um, first of all, I want to just mention one thing, which is that she uh, she uses a line here that is from a discredited economic theory, right? She says, when you bring down unemployment, inflation goes up. That's called the Phillips curve. That was a iron law of economics, supposedly, until the early 1980s. 
when uh, inflation was broken by the Fed and employment got staggeringly better. We had a 10% unemployment rate in 1982 uh, and an 18% interest rate. Interest rates go down. Employment drops from 10% to, I don't know, 6 by 1984 uh, while with inflation dead. So so her line, her easy, casual thing about how inflation go, you know, employment goes up, you know, employment goes gets better and inflation goes up, while it seems logical because more people have money and therefore they're, all that money is chasing more goods and therefore the goods supposedly get more expensive, it is belied when you have proper monetary policy and proper fiscal policy. It is not the case that the Phillips curve is inexorable. It's been discredited and she's just defaulting to it even though she herself lived through the period, uh, in in fact, she was about ninety years old when that happened. I mean, I mean, she was she was in her she was well into middle age when 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 the Phillips curve was disproved. So she's got no business playing that card, nor does Biden. Um, Briefly on, I had to on inflation, that, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I might be writing on this today. There was this poll that came out yesterday. Quinnipiac University pulled the New York State Senate race, or New York uh, gubernatorial race, found it um, pretty close, shockingly close. Shockingly Lee, close. Shockingly close. Lee Zeldin, uh, 46% to uh, the incumbent Democratic governor, Kathy Hochul's 50%. It's a four-point race in New York. Take it for what it's worth. It's it's one poll. A very good poll, but a cl- very close, and no other pollster has it like this. But it <laughs> asked uh, New York voters what their top priorities were for Republicans. It's crime followed by inflation. For Democrats, it's democracy. Protecting democracy is the number one issue this year, followed by crime, and then inflation coming up a really distant third place. Um, and you see this in some polling. Uh, for the most part, you pull Democrats nationally, inflation registers just like it does with everybody else because it's everybody's chief priority today. Um, but that declines as you think it would decline among people with degrees, among people who are white college graduates, income levels, what have you, the Democratic base. So there are two two things here that might be at work at the same time. I'm not sure to what degree um, they take primacy, but Either Democrats are not feeling inflation like everybody else is, which I'm sure is the case to some degree, given their income status, or they've been trained by the political environment to say that it's not their concern because their party has no answer for it, um, which is more toxic, more poisonous, more deadly to the Democratic Party's prospects. They don't have an answer to the question, so they're just sidestepping it, taking a pass on the primary issue of our time. It would be like Republicans in the fall of 2008 deciding to, I don't know, focus on immigration. It would just be so tone deaf, so suicidally blind to the conditions that dominate your environment. Um, But I think that's probably it. I think they've been trained by their political class, by people like Nancy Pelosi to say, "Eh, eh, not really a thing. By the way, Republicans, I mean, again, I don't want to actually defend the current ideological condition of the Republican Party, because a lot of these candidates are talking nonsense and deserve to be called out for talking nonsense. But the Republican Party has a default. They ain't got nothing about inflation. How about not spending more money at the governmental level? That's that is it. Like we keep are in an inflationary spiral because the government spent four to six trillion new dollars. Yeah, all they have January to do is say, well, what's and your now. plan? Not that. And they do, and they do, <laughs> I get, and they do. And I get this question all the time, because this is this is 
Biden's line? What's their plan on inflation, which is itself an admission of defeat. But yeah. they keep saying, what's their plan? What's their plan? And the plan is stop spending money. They keep hearing that and they say, right. it's like they don't hear anything. It's like that it doesn't register. I, I use but, this analogy a lot. It's like, you know, the uh, the Westworld hosts looking at their own schematics. They just they don't see what you're talking about. Well, or if like they do, else. they say you want seniors to starve like they'll, they they, yeah. they trot out the kind right. of Democratic tropes. However, I do want to I do want to issue a warning and a concern. Um, Noah did this last week, and I think now there's reason I was more um, sanguine about it than I think I should be about Republicans and spending on one specific issue, which is the war in Ukraine. Uh, because Kevin McCarthy is now saying, well, we're not just going to give them a blank check and da da da, because there's all this isolationist talk all through these Senate races about how, and this bizarre pro-Russia slant that has emerged from the fever swamps of the NatCons that somehow, you know, Ukraine is the aggressor in a war in which they were invaded um, and America shouldn't be spending this money because we're we're heading into World War III and all of that. Um, this money that we are spending on Ukraine is the best money that this country has ever spent. <laughs> yes. It is showing unbelievable results and returns, like returns we couldn't even have imagined it showing in terms of what we want the money to do, which is ballast and support the Ukrainian war effort as it succeeds. And the idea that, I mean, it is a it is a very discouraging fact that the uh, mainstream of the Republican Party has, for reasons, very complicated reasons, decided that it wants to, you know, a lot of them want to zero out Ukraine spending, which would be a calamitous and horribly disruptive and horrible mistake. What, I, what I'm worried about is that this could be a self-fulfilling prophecy, um, in, in part because they're talking about a very narrow sliver of the Republican base. And even if the polls are off by 20 points, a, a majority, even supermajority of Republicans in just about every poll since February have said they support the Ukrainian cause and support arming Ukraine and supporting Ukraine. Most of this money goes to Tennessee, to Alabama, where we manufacture the weapons that we're sending overseas. We're not sending pallets of American dollars right. to Eastern Europe. We're, we're we're arming them with the stuff that we make here. So it's so just it's a domestic it's domestic industrial support. Precisely. Like by the way, aid to Israel, which is famously um ninety percent of the aid to Israel in you know that that goes through the American budget is spent on things made in the United States. It's a kind of industrial policy. We tend not to like that, but actually in the NatCons like that. That that's what they claim. Oh, that's to want. true. They love that. We should yeah, have but more they military don't really. spending. They, they hate American hegemony and they hate the United right. States. They <laughs> right. Right. But, but yeah, but they, yeah. anything. Um, right. But but this could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. In so far as if they keep push, pushing this button, Republicans will pick up on it and start to re repeat the lines that they're being fed by the political class. That's something that's real. I don't want to discount that. But at the same time, you have a mandate as Speaker of the House, if Kevin McCarthy wants to be, to not do really dumb, unpopular stuff. And that would be really dumb and very unpopular, not just with the rest of you know, the United States, but Republican voters to take the polls at face value. So I'm skeptical that they're going to go out there and, and wage this a very stupid crusade right. for a right. very stupid objective that would just frustrate more people than it, than it enlivens for the benefit of whom? Peter Thiel. Well, that's interesting. We've just we've just uh, we've just flipped. You mean you mean Peter Thiel, Thiel, uh, Thiel resident of Malta? <laughs> Peter Thiel seeking citizenship I think, in yeah, Malta. I think 
you know, the collapse. He's going to have the nicest house in Valletta. That's all I'm going to tell you. Valletta will never have seen a mansion like the one Peter Thiel is going to build in in Malta. Anyway, in the capital city of Valletta, um, King's Landing. Uh, it actually looks like King's Landing. I thought um, they filmed it there. Oh, did they? Malta. Popeye was filmed wrong. there. That I know. Robert Williams's Popeye was filmed there. And in fact, the village that they built there is a tourist attraction on Malta, which was. That has got to be some I'm of the most obscure pop culture ever. <laughs> oh, you want more? It. Okay, that, okay more there's of that. that. There's that. Here's the other one. Malta was the single most bombed place on Earth in the history of the planet Earth. Malta was a weird, um, you know, sort of like uh, spot of conflict between Britain and the Nazis in World War II um, when they weren't, you know, engaging directly and Malta sitting right there, you know, at the sort of, you know, between Europe and North Africa, um, unbelievably bombarded. And they have caves. They have they have uh, the Knights of Malta built underground cities, effectively. There's actually a version of this in, in, in Israel, in Akko, which some of our listeners may may have gone to the Crusader cities. The Crusaders built these cities underground, and so the Maltese actually had a place to go to to protect themselves from from the bombardment. But so Malta, so Peter Thiel is about to drop, you know, jump out of a parachute and go to Malta for whatever reason, so that he can build his seascape tunnels and control Blake Masters and J.D. Vance from far away with his, you know, puppeteer's strings. I don't know why we went there. Anyway, but no, but but it's funny, Noah, because you and I just switched positions because I was poo-pooing this last week. And then it's not good that Kevin McCarthy is saying what no, he's saying. It's not good. Uh, although, <laughs> although there is one face-saving thing, which is actually po- potentially a positive. He says... We're not going to give them a blank check. There's going to be oversight. There's going to be this. There's going to be that. More Republican involvement, ser- you know, in a serious way in foreign policy matters, rather than sort of reckless, stupid blathering from the moron MAGA idiots and conspiracy theorists and scum like Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like that, like you know, we don't need that. But if actually somebody wants to, you know, chair the House Armed Services Committee and be a serious person and actually be involved in helping to structure budgetarily where that money goes and how it's spent and all that, that's to the good. That's what Congress right. is supposed to yeah, do. Yeah. And there's plenty of oversight. Provide oversight. Funds. Well, there's plenty of, and there's another thing yeah. that like, I, it was, why isn't there an inspector general oversight? There is, there's a lot of oversight. <laughs> to this um, if you actually read the legislation yeah. it's very you know festooned with yeah. with provisions about oversight but again i mean like you'd have to you'd have to be a real true believer in the cause of american isolationism and maybe in russia's geostrategic interests in order to pursue this because it takes a lot of persuasion you have to persuade america on this one and do the do the republicans really want to devote themselves to this the, very unpopular <laughs> foolish crusade it would take work the uh the threat of the nuke helps though Right. Uh, very much. I mean, because that, that's, that's, that's there. That's there. The you're all pursuing recklessly. You're pursuing World War Three. Let's, yes. you know, let's not be crazy. You're all crazy. Right. Um, I want to go to conclude with a very, very interesting thing. So uh, Ben Smith, the uh, uh, former head of BuzzFeed, and then he was the New York Times media columnist that started this new media business called Semaphore. 
and you know he is one of the best media reporters who's ever lived and he has a new um he has a new his semaphore his first piece is called inside the identity crisis at the new york times and um what's amazing about this is it's about how the new york times is you know basically uh ending up with uh you know diversity equity and inclusion experts and you know like they're their their personnel they're they're setting themselves up as Noah said in our text to be like a humanities department rather than a going concern but um it's a great piece and you should read it but here the most amazing part of it is um he says this many times staffers I spoke to believe the cultural conflict meaning the conflict over wokeness has been displaced by the labor struggle meaning the woke people want to get big raises and want the union to get them big raises. Um, but um, despite that, um, he goes to the, the cultural conflict. So, quote, Times management has clawed back its ability to run conservative points of view without facing a newsroom revolt. But has anyone noticed it's hard to walk back high-profile grand gestures like the firing of James Bennett? James Bennett was the editorial and op page and op-ed editor uh, in 2020 when uh, Barry Weiss uh, and um, her colleague Adam Rubenstein uh, commissioned and uh, edited and uh, helped publish with his uh, supervision Tom Cotton's piece calling for the deployment of the U.S. military to stem the riots over uh, uh, after George Floyd, uh, which you may remember led to uh, time staffers saying, having going an open revolt, saying they felt unsafe. Uh, the publication of this piece made them feel unsafe, and um, uh, within you know within a day, you know Barry, you know. Uh, Barry quit. Uh, Adam Rubenstein was fired, and eventually, and in in the course of this, you know, purge, James Bennett was ousted. But not before James Bennett uh, put his name on a, an editorial note after the publication of Tom Cotton's piece, saying we shouldn't have published the piece. So here's what I want to read to you from James Bennett, who is now at the Economist. Uh, one skeptic that the Times has an easy path back is Bennett himself. Uh, the former opinion editor, one time heir apparent to run the Times, spoke to me this Saturday in his first on-the-record interview about the episode. Bennett believes that the publisher, Sulzberger, blew the opportunity, this is quote, blew the opportunity to make clear that the New York Times doesn't exist just to tell progressives how progressives should view reality. That was a huge mistake and a missed opportunity for him to show real strength. He still could have fired me. Uh, Bennett, who now writes the Lexington column for The Economist, signed off on an editor's note amid the controversy that the column, quote, fell short of our standards and should not have been published. This note that he wrote at the time, we and others said, was among the most craven pieces of um, begging to keep your job that anybody has ever done. But here's what Bennett says today. My regret is that editor's note. My mistake there was trying to mollify people. Unquote. The Times and its publisher, Bennett said, want to have it both ways. 
they want to have the applause and welcome of the left. And now there's the problem on top of that, that they've signed up so many new subscribers in the last few years. And the expectations of those subscribers is that the Times will be Mother Jones on steroids. Uh, he remains wounded by Sulzberger's lack of loyalty. I actually knew what it meant to have a target on your back when you're reporting for the New York Times, he said, referring to incidents in the West Bank and Gaza that he reported on. But none of that mattered, and none of it mattered to A.G. Sulzberger. When push came to shove at the end, he set me on fire and threw me in the garbage and used my reverence for the institution against me. This is why I was so bewildered for so long after I had what felt like all my colleagues treating me like an incompetent, fascist. So James Bennett has been red-pilled. And as a result, I would like to Welcome, issue this <laughs> I would like to issue this invitation to James Bennett. We are completely sold out of the roast of one Barry Weiss. <laughs> we are completely sold out. However, if James Bennett, red-pilled James Bennett, would like to commune with what are the people who was red-pilled at the same time, whose back he did not have, the same way A.G. Sulzberger did not have his back. But if he wishes to catch a glimpse of Barry, commune with Barry, see Barry celebrated and made fun of and all that at our roast on November 13th in New York City, I am offering him a comp ticket. Please email podcast at commentary.org james bennett and we will host you and you and barry can have a nice moment to commune together in the destruction of this once great institution and indeed the opportunity that has provided barry to become you know a uh a journalistic and media entrepreneur of uh, a very high standing so james bennett november 13th again i'm not saying this to everybody we are sold out i'm sorry but uh, podcastcommentary.org, just make sure we know you're James Bennett. Hey, by the way, one of the amazing things in that piece was the observation that now in the Times effort to sort of back away from 2020 world, um, they've, the people have noticed that uh, sometimes they read things uh, and on Barry's site, and then the Times sort of picks up on it after, you know. <laughs> they are notorious she, reporters, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's sort of you know, setting setting the agenda uh, for their for their for their walk back. But it's funny because, so the Times has essentially put itself in the same bind as the Democratic Party. Uh, they gave themselves over to the radicals, and and they and they don't quite know how to back out of it, and they're trying to achieve this stealthy detransition. Yeah. While they have well, this, and, while they and have and they're bureaucratizing, <laughs> they're becoming academia. They're yeah. trying to bureaucratize yes. the DEI stuff, make it make it a kind of part of. But unfortunately, unfortunately, Abe, they've had the bottom surgery. <laughs> so <laughs> transitioning is going to be very yeah. hard. If yeah. Bennett had been more attuned to this movement that he was seeking the uh, the you know support of, or at least you know just to look past him he would have known as we've been writing about four years i wrote in my first book that apologizing is what makes you a, a ripe target that trying to just genuflect and supplicate yourself before this this movement that's tormenting you uh signs your own death warrant but that um, is what barry that is what barry understood in that famous yeah. letter that she put out when she resigned which yeah, is she was actually following 
this thing that they were supposed to be chronicling and just chose not to. Well, it was also like, uh, I cannot in good conscience play this game anymore because my soul is at risk. And just as Jeffrey Goldberg sold his soul by, by throwing Kevin Williamson to the wolves to suck up to his owner rather than stand firm on, you know, the principle that led him to hire Kevin Williamson in the first place. Same was true of James Bennett. <clears throat> James Bennett could be Barry today. James well, Bennett could have done it first. James Bennett said, I'm not apologizing for publishing a U.S. senator expressing a perfectly acceptable position just because 25-year-old assholes at my paper are having a temper tantrum that you but, should fire them all over. But it's not just the 25-year-old assholes. It's also, I mean, I think the 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 early warning sign that the Times is never going back and really can't any longer is the 1619 Project and the way they reacted to criticism of that and the way they've turned that into a multimedia juggernaut for the institution mm -hmm. that has elevated a version of, of American history that is that is pernicious at its core. And I think that they went all in on that and they are not backing down. And so uh, any hope of reform or you know, detransitioning, as Abe said, is, is probably just that uh figment yeah I, I i i have i hold out i hold out no hope it is still when it decides it wants to set its mind to looking at something or digging deep into something or spending three months on something it's rich enough and it's sophisticated enough and it has enough depth to really blow you away uh and still the, some the very good reporters we should and not, that's like, what i mean is, yeah, yeah some very good reporters and obviously the one reporter who's, you know, whose tenure is ticking down inexorably to the moment at which they will no longer let him do what he does. It's Michael Powell, who is now the sort of wokeness reporter. Um, you know, but of course, just even even a week and a half ago, there was this astonishing John Leland piece on on the dog killing in in Prospect Park and the and the uh, uh, and the cultural. Which I think war I first erupted. read about via Susie Weiss in Common Sense. Uh, there you go. Very, right. So anyway. Um, so the New York Times is beyond hope and yet at the same time unignorable. So that's the horror that we that we live with. It's as though Pravda had good reporting, which is uh, which is very which, un unfair, by the way, to Mother Jones, which actually is very left wing, but has some pretty decent analysis and is not just yeah. it was a funny waving line. bloody tunics and playing to the cheap seats. Yeah, it was a funny line. It would be more like the young Turks or I don't yeah. know, you know. Or Jacobin, Jacobin, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so uh, we are happy to welcome James Bennett into the rueful fold. Uh, I'm sure he doesn't want to be there, but here we are. Uh, Podcastcommentary.org, James. For Noah and Abe and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camel burning. <laughs> <laughs>